Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we plumb the depths of Waterworld. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I'm here with Chris. Hello, it's a great honor to be here for this episode. And Troy. Hi. And this is a very special episode. First of all, it is the 30th uh, episode of Tenpole Trauma, so we have made it to episode 30. All right. It's only appropriate that when getting to a number like 30, you do a very special movie so the movie that we're doing this week is Waterworld. Yeah. Now, Waterworld is a movie that is near and dear to my heart. And in fact, when I started this podcast, one of the top three movies I wanted to discuss was Waterworld. So the sun is out, summer's here, people are going to the beach, it's time to talk Waterworld. And I'm sure this is the movie that everybody's been waiting to hear us discuss. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Waterworld is obviously a very famous movie. It's more famous for its troubled production and its perception that it is a huge box office bomb. People always say, oh, that was a huge bomb. You know, it's a terrible movie, yada, yada, yada. Like Ishtar, all the big movies. Waterworld is right up there with the biggest box office bombs, at least in the way it is perceived, if not in the actual numbers when you look at them. But it really comes from the fact that it was a very troubled production. It was this really ambitious movie that was shot all on the water pretty much. And while they were shooting it, there were these terrible hurricanes that destroyed like that whole atoll set and everything. So it went from a budget of $100 million, which was still a ton of money for this kind of movie back in 1995. But it ballooned to $175 million. And it was probably really more than that when all was said and done. But it came from an original screenplay that was written in 1986 by a guy named Peter Rader. I don't know what his other credits are, but it's funny because when you see Waterworld, the first thing you think of is, oh, it's just a Mad Max ripoff on water. 
But you think, well, this must have come from some sort of idea that didn't start off as a Mad Max ripoff on water. <laughs> but no, it absolutely started as a Mad Max on water ripoff. Like that's literally the thing the guy was thinking when he wrote it. He had like just seen like the Road Warrior or whatever and was like, wouldn't it be cool if that was on water? And then everybody was looking for a Mad Max ripoff in the 80s. And so this script had been sitting around since 1986 until finally Kevin Costner picked it up and had David Toohey, who has also been discussed on this podcast with Chronicles of Riddick, mm. another movie I like a lot uh. and maybe not everyone else does. So he rewrote it and Joss Whedon actually came on and did some uncredited rewrites. And if you go out there into the internet, uh, you can find like snarky Joss Whedon stories about working on Waterworld, but Joss Whedon's been canceled, so no one cares what he thinks anymore. But he had some (laughs) snarky stories to say about Waterworld. But I'm more interested in you guys' history with Waterworld. Now, Chris, what was your first experience with this monumental film? Uh, Well, I was actually working at a movie theater um, when I was home from college for the summer and it was showing Waterworld. And I remember all the hype and, you know, the posters being up and changing the marquee to say Waterworld. And I knew that it was the most expensive movie at the time or maybe just the budget had ballooned to a ridiculous amount. It was the most expensive, definitely. Right. I think Terminator 2 had been like almost 200 million, I thought. But either way, it was definitely poised to be a big bomb. And I remember some, you know, newscasters being like, well, it's going to be a hot summer. Maybe people will want to cool off with Waterworld. And (laughs) it was one of those things where I literally could see, you know, the audience trickle down to like nothing by like the first week or second week of showings. And, you know, I saw it in the theater and we'll discuss our feelings later. Troy, how about you? You don't remember <laughs> you made me watch this like not that long ago that's how i watched Waterworld. but had you never seen it before that i'd never seen it before no i'd never seen it before first of all i didn't realize that both you guys were huge fans i always thought that you sebastian this was like your movie that you used to like tease people like uh-huh. come on watch Waterworld. it's gonna be miserable <laughs> like this is this was like some funny thing that you do Right. And I thought when you invited me over to see Waterworld, it's like, <laughs> we're going to watch Waterworld. I didn't know this was like, honestly, one of your favorite films. Uh-huh. So I feel bad coming to your podcast to talk about it. Well, I like to have dissenting opinions. So. All right. But that's how I, that was my experience seeing Waterworld is you made me watch it. But that was the, the Ulysses cut or something. Yes. Okay. You watched the Ulysses cut when I purchased the $40 Arrow Blu-ray of this film, which is amazing, I might add, and I don't regret buying it at all. But before that, I had the Universal Blu-ray, and I Mm -hmm. upgraded to the Arrow Blu-ray because it came with different cuts of the film, and it's just a way better version. That was the first time you'd ever seen the movie by watching the Ulysses cut? Yeah, so, and you know, and you showed me that cut, and then I watched it again last night the theatrical cut which I'll, I'll admit this it is way worse than the Ulysses cut oh however the Ulysses cut has that girl constantly talking through the whole fucking movie so <laughs> at least it didn't have that 
in the theatrical cut. I can t- discuss the differences very clearly because I I'll watched leave that up to you. I watched okay. both the Ulysses cut and the theatrical cut for this podcast. I'm sure you did. But this came out when I was in college and movies like this would come out and it'd be a big kind of funny thing to go for art students to go so let's go see the big tragic Hollywood movie that came out that's bombing. This wasn't even that. This was just a movie. I don't know. It was like one of those things that everybody has to put up with just because it's in your face. Yeah. And it just, I just remember people sort of laughing about it a little bit, how ridiculous it was. But I don't remember anybody. One person I remember saw it and was like, it was really cool how he like did everything on his boat. And that's like all he could say about it. Just one guy like doing everything like a one man band. Yeah, it's cool. Now, I saw this movie in the theater, but like Chris, I was working for a movie theater at the time. I was working for an art house cinema in Boston, and we used to get prints to screen. And even though our movie theater, we were part of a big chain, and even though our movie theater wasn't going to show Waterworld, we would get the print and we'd show it for a screening. And then what would happen sometimes is we would all get to stay late and watch the movie if we wanted to and invite all our friends. So we did that and we all got like beers and smoked pot and I had been sort of paying attention to Waterworld because I'd been hearing the stories. I knew it was this like Mad Max on water movie. And, you know, the stories were that it was a total disaster and that all the cost overruns and everything. So I was kind of like, hmm, Waterworld. And then, you know, I would see some pictures of it and I was like, hmm, that kind of does look like Mad Max on water. I'm intrigued. (laughs) And then... We screened the movie at the theater and I'm, you know, at the time I'm like 25 years old. I'm completely approaching this sarcastically, which I still approach the movie somewhat sarcastically, but I was really in it to mock it and I was high as a kite and the movie started and even though I was kind of laughing at it, I was also kind of laughing with it and I kind of really enjoyed it. And I remember after the screening, everybody was like, that was the worst movie we've ever seen. And I was like, I don't know. I think I kind of liked Waterworld. And so in the ensuing years, I have revisited it and my love for it just continues to grow and grow. I think it's mostly that I just love that there is a $200 million movie That's Mad Max on water, just the most ridiculous high concept thing anybody could do. And they threw all the money at it. So what's not to love? And I also think there are things that are legitimately fun and good about the movie that we will discuss. The movie was directed by Kevin Reynolds, but that's not entirely true. Kevin Reynolds was a guy that Kevin Costner had a working relationship with. He directed that terrible Robin Hood movie, Prince of Thieves. Oh, God. Yeah. Really bad movie. But didn't they do Fandango together? They did Fandango, yes. Fandango's great. Have you guys ever seen it? I've never seen it. It's a crazy road movie with Kevin Costner. It's It's, so good. It's It's a terrific comedy. It's like a classic 80s. I mean, it's not classic. It's, It's kind of an unknown, but it is a excellent 80s road trip comedy. Huh. Guy movie, yeah. Yeah, I just assumed from the title and that it was Kevin Reynolds, it was terrible, but I'll actually give Fandango a shot, considering how much I enjoy this film. Yeah. But (laughs) 
Kevin Reynolds got frustrated with the experience of filming it. I think him and Kevin Costner were at odds the whole time, plus all the horrible things that happened. Eventually, it is rumored that he walked off the set while filming, and Kevin Costner had to take over. See, that makes sense to me because you're talking about the misinterpretations of the history of Waterworld. In my mind... Kevin Costner directed this movie. Right. See, that's what I thought, too. It was Dances with Wolves, Waterworld, yeah. then The Postman. Those are the three movies that, in my mind, Kevin Costner directed. And thank you for explaining this. I just found out about that last night when I was looking, actually just tr- trying to look through everything when I was screening this. Yeah, my whole life I thought this was, like, fresh off of Dances with Wolves. Yeah. Then he came to this with, like, they basically gave him, like, all the money in the world, do whatever you want. I just had this idea that Kevin Costner was like sitting on his yacht, sipping white wine. And he's like, totally. What if this was all mine? And I just controlled everything here, you know, listening to Jimmy Buffett. And then he's like, maybe let's do, let's do like Mad Max beyond Margaritaville. Just because he didn't direct it, it doesn't mean that's not still true. I mean, I think that he did really want to do this movie. I think this movie was a passion project of his, but he just wanted to do it with his buddy that he had done some other movies with. I didn't realize, so this was written in 1986 when everybody was doing a Mad Max ripoff. So this is kind of late to the party. Yes. And I agree with you. Like, I love a Mad Max ripoff. I mean, any of those post-apocalyptic 80s movies that are low budget are great. Throw a bunch of money at it and just have somebody sitting on a boat for two hours? It's soggy Mad Max. Well, I mean, we should get into the movie, don't you think? Are you ready to deep dive into Waterworld? <laughs> we start with, I think, one of the greatest introductions yeah. that has ever been put on film, Yeah, where we're in the Universal Globe, and it seems like it's been sort of jazzed up like the space around the universal earth it looks kind of purpley it's like they they jazzed it up and we zoom in to the polar ice caps and we see them slowly melting and we get this voiceover from this guy who did all the voiceover work for all the trailers at that time yeah and the voiceover is the future The polar ice caps have melted, covering the earth with water. Those that survived have adapted to a new world. And then we get this kick-ass music, and the title Waterworld comes up. And, like, you just know you're in for a wild ride. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, I love it when movies take the logos and actually incorporate them. You know, like Gladiator gives it this sort of Roman feel and the colors desaturated. And I feel like that usually indicates when then the filmmakers really care. You know, they're like, let's build the vibe from the very get-go, from the first logo. And I think this is done really well. You also have to get a special permission to do that. It's really, you can't just like say, hey, we're going to take your logo and like put fire around it and stuff. Like the head of those companies have to, it has to go through all kinds of clearance and everything. So it's a big deal when they're allowed to do that. Right. So right away, we're getting a stamp of approval from Universal. We are, we're behind you, Waterworld. I have to say that the music sounds like Avatar. We will definitely talk about the music. The music, I will admit, is a problem. We'll get into it in a second. This isn't the part that's bad, though. You're right. No, it was it was a cool open. This opening music is fine. Yeah, and we're getting this kind of like islandy vibe from mm-hmm. the music. There's like one of those, I don't know, flutes that goes... Bloop, bloop. 
And then <laughs> a pan pipe or something. Yeah. And we zoom in. I think there's a lot of really good aerial photography in this film. There's a totally. lot of good like plane camera shots or helicopters or whatever they're using. But we zoom into a boat that we're going to become intimately familiar with for the next two hours and 15 minutes or three hours, depending on what cut you watched. And it's called the Trimoran. And we're introduced to our main character, the Mariner, as played by Kevin Costner. We get his butt of his like post-apocalyptic pants, which are really cool and have these sort of like strips of leather on them. But he's peeing into a recycling device and he's recycling his own piss and he's fucking drinking his own piss. This is your introduction to your character. How can you not say to yourself, holy fucking shit? Come on, guys. I don't want to yuck your yum. But I feel like, yeah, that's cool. I didn't know if we needed to to open with that, maybe. You don't think that's the strongest foot to open on? <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting choice. Yeah, Troy, come on. You're a guy who likes daring artistic choices. You don't think this is a daring? You're right. It's daring, and it does establish his character. It's a guy on a boat who drinks his own piss. Done. <laughs> Like, that's his character, right? I see a trend here, too. I mean, they drink their own piss with the stilt suits in Dune, and now we get that's to see right. it. You don't see it in Dune. Here, we freaking see it. Yeah, we, like, get to follow the piss, like, through the recycling device, mm -hmm. and then he drinks it, and he spits it into this little lime tree that he's got, which will sort of become an important factor in the next few minutes. But yeah, so we're introduced to our character, known only as the Mariner, drinking his own piss. After that, he goes diving. We don't really know what, what he's diving for, but we'll find out later. But when he comes up, there's this drifter there. And the costumes in this movie, I think, are really fun. A lot of times they're made out of like sea refuse or those plastic uh, soda. The plastic six-pack rings. Yeah, the thing you're supposed to cut up so that the turtles don't get caught in them. Exactly. Stuff like that is sort of worked into the costumes. I feel like the costumes and production design here are really fun to look at. But we, yeah, we get this drifter. I think he's wearing like a colander on his head or something. And they have this conversation. First, we see that he's snatched the lime tree or the limes off of the Mariner's lime tree. And then they have this like sort of ominous conversation where the drifter's sort of saying like, oh, I didn't see anything. I'm being a nice guy. And, uh, you know, I'll give you some information. There's this atoll about eight days east and you should go there. The Mariner's like, you know, he's laying out the drifter's code and he's like, something needs to be exchanged. And the guy's like, no, no, this is free. And then Kevin Costner goes, nothing's free in Waterworld, which kick-ass line. Like, that's really some good writing, like telling you right there, like everything you need to know, like nothing is free in Waterworld. And then the guy reveals that he's stolen some of his limes and then our villains show up, or at least like the minions of our villain, the smokers show up and they give chase after the Mariner but the Mariner, we find out his trimaran is tricked out with all these cool sails that like pop up and yeah. he's got all these pulleys and shit and he can swing around the trimaran on the pulleys like Batman or something like <laughs> it's fucking cool, man. <laughs> they made a toy of that trimaran. I never got it. What? I know. It's, I so there were toys made, Waterworld toys? There was a Waterworld action Like a whole figures. line of action figures and stuff? Yep. 
and they had this ship and they had uh, a bunch of different Kevin Costner's like undersea Mariner and like, you know, cookout style Mariner <laughs> or whatever stupid things. I have one of them. I would have gone and looked for it for the podcast, but it's in a box somewhere in the garage. I have no idea. They totally need a Kevin Costner drinks his own pee action figure. Yeah, you just squeeze you, them yes. in the bathtub. <laughs> you could drink his pee. The Mariner reveals that he's got this kick-ass, tricked-out trimaran, and he escapes the smokers, but he not only escapes the smokers, but he hobbles the drifter's boat, getting revenge on him for stealing his limes. So right away, you know that the Mariner is a badass. I just had a, a quick question for you guys. Do they call them the smokers because they smoked cigarettes? Yes. All right. That's it. They smoke cigarettes, so they call them the smokers. I was okay. confused about that too. Though. What's confusing? They smoke cigarettes. Well, also they're like everything they use like emits a lot of smoke too. So I was like, oh, is it because they're far away and you can tell that the smoke is on the horizon? Oh, the smokers are coming. Or if it was just... I think it's a whole unifying theme. They smoke cigarettes. They burn fuel. They make right. smoke. They're the smokers. Got it. It's just shorthand. It's excellent writing. Excellent. It is excellent. I mean... <laughs> What more do you need to know? They smoke cigarettes and they <laughs> cause fires on the water. Now, what do you guys think about Kevin Costner as the Mariner? Pretty miscast. Kevin Costner is very, very middle of the road mom and apple pie. You know, I mean, he's great in certain movies. He's terrible in others. He does his best with this, I think. He doesn't ruin the movie like something like Robin Hood. I think it's also partly to blame that it, the movie's not rated R. Like if you're going to do Mad Max on the water, like how could, you know, I guess going PG-13 and casting Kevin Costner sort of works. He wins you over by the end, but I feel like I would prefer a little bit more harder-edged, nihilistic uh, actor in there. I actually, I really like Kevin Costner as an actor. Like I said, Fandango uh, was always one of my favorite unknown 80s comedies. Does he drink his own pee in that too? <laughs> no, but they, they do other like college hazing type of stuff in there pretty close. So he's he's treaded this territory before. <laughs> but uh no, I don't think anybody in this movie was cast correctly to be honest, even Dennis Hopper. Mm. Like I just for but with sticking with Kevin Costner, I mean <sighs> You kept telling me about his his thinning hair. I, I rented this on uh, Amazon Prime in 4K, uh -huh. which honestly made it even worse. Uh -huh. So because you're just seeing like his he's rocking the dad bod a little bit. Yeah, he's totally. kind of wearing this midriff and his, he's got like a bit of a muffin top kind of hanging out totally. of it. And, yep. and then he's got this receding hair. Yeah. Dude, the hair is horrible. Like when it's wet, it yes. just looks even worse. Oh. Yeah. That's why... I was calling him Soggy Mad Max because he just doesn't... Seeing this kind of doughy guy grunting around, he's he's really kind of miserable and curmudgeonly oh, yeah. the whole time. Uh, not a good choice. The hair is horrible. And they even allude to how they're like, you need to get a haircut. And you're, you keep yes. thinking, oh, this is going to be the, the makeover moment where he becomes hot. And then I, it never happens. I feel like that was... Yeah, that never happens. It was a big detriment to the movie. And there was a lot of moments where they could have done that. Like, yeah. like you said, Chris, and every single step where he could have upgraded his costume or something just got it worse like the ski he found these ski boots he's like cool i'm gonna wear ski boots and it just now he's clomping around in these things that everybody knows you can't walk in those yeah or swim in them well he's wearing them to hide his webbed feet 
There's an actual reason why he wears those boots. I'm just saying there was a lot of uh, moments where they could have made him even more cool. Like they Chris could have righted the the boat. They could have so given him even more like fish uh, seashell earrings. Uh-huh. Or you know he already had some. You know, they could have rocked that a little harder. He always seemed like he was missing the mark every time. I can't really offer an adequate defense for the hair because the hair is terrible. And it's really receding and thinning and wisping. And, and yeah, wet. It looks, and wet. And it looks even worse when it's wet, like you guys said. So, yeah, there's no excuse for the hair. I kind of like the dad bod. I don't know why. I just think it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when he gets that like uh, scuba vest and he's sort of like poking out a little at the bottom of that scuba vest. I like it. Yeah, it shows its story. It's the, the mariner eats well because, you know, of his skills. And he's like the only chubby guy in the in the universe. Speaking of eating, let's address this because it comes up many times in the movie that it's really hard to eat in this world. And it's also really hard to drink water because all of the water is salt. So you've either got to have some great desalinating device or you find fresh water somewhere. So people in this movie, in this world, are constantly like thirsting for water. How do people survive being constantly deprived of food and water? Like you cannot survive in a world where you can't find food and water readily. This movie does not survive nitpicking at all. I mean, yeah. if, if you had Rodney on here, Rodney, I, your head is spinning somewhere. It's just ridiculous, yes. Sebastian, you said that this, you know, the excellent writing in this did kind of miss trying to explain how they got fuel, food, right. water. What else do you need to survive on? It was just like, uh, some of it you could kind of make up. Like, I don't know, maybe they burn their own shit or something but the way things are set up here i feel like these people would last about a week well it's also absurd if the polar ice caps melted it would not be this much water the things would get flooded but it wouldn't be the full world but who cares they have bullets and gas yeah like and and electricity Uh, you know what and i'm glad they do because it's fun it's fun i'll give you that like it it is fun to just not have any logic when you create a world like this. But for me, it's like, if you're going to make a Mad Max movie, just set it somewhere else. Like, it was a cool idea on paper to have it in the water, but none of these things work. Nothing works. And even fish gills behind the ears is like, yeah, that's kind of a cool idea. It's totally ridiculous. And also, it would take like um, multiple generations to have mutations happen, like of webbed course. feet, and we're talking like a hundred more, th- hundreds of years. Maybe he's an X Men. Did you ever see the Simpsons episode where they talk about how Mister Burns has every disease, and they <laughs> yes. all cancel <laughs> each other out? Yeah. That's how I feel about Waterworld. Is there are so many logic holes sure. that they become they all cancel each other out because you really can't believe any of it. Yeah, yeah. After a while, you just give up. Right. That's a powerful tool. And Mad Max doesn't make any sense either. Everyone's like so precious about fuel and then they drive like maniacs. Like, so that doesn't make sense yeah. either. Yeah, but at least in Mad Max, you they have this fortress with oil derricks. Like they at least try to give you some kind of prop that you can sort of say, well, at least they're mining for Do it. Do I need to explain to you what ship the smokers are on? Yeah, that does explain a lot. How long would that last? 
they talk about how it's running out. Okay. Usually those things have to refuel after like one trip across the Atlantic. Yeah, but it's like an oil tanker that carries all oil. Look, it's ridiculous. I'm right. not saying it's okay. feasible, but I'm just saying they they do about as much as sure. the yeah. oil refinery in Mad Max to establish that yeah. these people at least have oil. Agreed. Agreed. They're carrying a, a giant amount of fuel in an oil tanker and there's a guy and swimming around in it who's concerned that it's running out, the the old fuel man who's working down below. I love him. He's great. He's one of the best parts of the movie, I think. Um, now, one of the things in the movie that's not the best part is, unfortunately, the James Newton Howard score. Oh, yeah, there was another that. guy who right. did a score originally. Isham, right? Yeah, yep. Mark Isham. And they got rid of his score. And I bet you anything like his score probably sounded more like the music in that opening scene mm. that I was talking about with the flute because according to Kevin Costner it was like it was too ethnic and dark or whatever and that's what this movie needed because that's the tone of a lot of a lot of the movie totally but when it kicks into this like indiana jones style horrible dun, 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 it's like dun, into dun, the dun, wild dun, blue dun, yonder oh god horrible it is relentless like even when he's peeing it's just bum, 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 bum. <laughs> i actually am a huge mark isham fan i used to love his soundtracks when i was a kid and the, the stuff he did for the hitcher it's just great like he's done incredible scores so it was kind of disappointing to hear that he wrote a whole score for this and they tossed it out all right so let's move on to the next big set piece which is the atoll now this was the set that i was talking about it was sort of the big production cost of the movie it's this atoll i don't know well how else you would describe it but it's a construction out in the middle of the water that has water in the center of it and then big walls all around anyway the mariner arrives at this place and you know you need to have some sort of cred to get in so he shows the people at the gate that he's got a jar full of dirt which is worth a lot of money in Waterworld. Now in the um, Ulysses cut, there's this old man sitting on a boat trying to get in and he's like, can I sell my hair? And he's got this white hair and the guys at the gate are like, hmm, his hair is kind of nice, but they're like, nah. And then the Mariner shows up and they let him instead. The Mariner gets in and as he's moving through the atoll, he sees these like religious people burying this dead woman in this sort of goo. And this is the way they deal with their dead. They recycle them. And the Mariner's like tying up his boat and he's got this mirror that he's flashing in the eyes of these little kids. And, you know, basically he wants to let them have a mirror if they watch his boat. But this guy sort of comes over and he's the enforcer. He's played by an actor named R.D. Call. Is that the guy with the Van Halen hair? He looks more like a member of 38 Special. All right. But he's like, you know me. And the Mariner's like, I know what you are. So, you know, we understand that he's the guy that's enforcing the law. And so... The Mariner goes to get his dirt counted up so he can trade it for hydro, which is what they call water. You forgot to mention there's the in that goo, they, they've got this giant tree. It looks like this giant banyan tree that's growing out of this goo. So they're recycling the people to try to keep whatever plant life they have yeah. living. I don't know. There was It looked like the, how many people were in this atoll? Like 20? Probably like 40 or 50 would be my guess. Okay. So if you die, you help juice this tree can we just talk about the set in general because yeah. like you were saying you know in 4k those aerial shots of the atoll 
really solid. I mean, you get the expanse, like how how huge it is, the fact that it was real, that they made it, it was floating on on the water. And then you're like, wait, wait a minute, like it doesn't take up how many minutes of, of screen time that they built this entire thing that sank and Spielberg advised them not to even do it because <laughs> yeah. of Jaws. his experience on yeah. Jaws. Yep. And you're like, this could have been one or two miniatures for the wides and then they could have done all this on a set. Like, there's no reason this whole thing was needed to be built on water unless, like, the whole movie was going to take place there. It just seems crazy to me that they built this whole thing on water and it doesn't really... I guess there's the action scene, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, pieces of it are seen. There's a bunch of explosions it on just, it. Yeah. It still feels crazy that this much money was spent on it. It doesn't pay off, really. I agree, Chris. It it seems like mismanagement yes. yeah. completely. And I don't feel like it really did pay off either because it. a lot of times you're just kind of... He's like uh, in this room trading with people and all these set pieces are supposed to be like from refuse and and junk that they've collected. I mean, I guess on some of those aerial shots, yeah, you're like, wow, that's a that's a big ass set. But once he's in there, it could have kind of taken place anywhere. Well, and I know they could have built it on land because I went to see it at Universal Studios when yeah. they built the Waterworld stunt show, which takes place like yeah. entirely inside the atoll. And you see the big stunt sequence that's very similar to the one that's going to happen in a few minutes in the movie. I mean, I'm assuming that when they're inside the atoll, most of that is... Is in a soundstage or something. Or like in a tank or something. Right. Speaking of which, that ride, that experience at Universal Studios justifies this whole movie, in my opinion. It's so good. Yeah, super fun, and I highly recommend the Waterworld stunt show. Sebastian, you have a whole screenplay idea based on it, right? That's right, yeah. I came up with this idea for a high-concept action movie called Thrill Ride, which would be intentionally (laughs) just the most generically titled movie. But it, it was about a guy who played the Mariner in the Waterworld stunt show and then terrorists invade like Universal Studios <laughs> so and good. the guy that plays the Mariner in the Waterworld stunt show because he's got these stunt show skills has to stop the terrorists. Genius. All right, that justifies Waterworld. Yes. Go straight to Universal head office, Sebastian. Call me Universal. I'm glad that we do have Waterworld in cinema history so that someday maybe you could sell and that think script. about it like every scene could take place on like a different ride like one scene's like on the jurassic world <laughs> yeah. or whatever yeah he's worked on all of them yeah yeah <laughs> and his divorced wife with his kid comes right and they get captured of course yeah yeah they're there for to enjoy a, a comp today at universal exactly like, the terrorist strike you're finally gonna see what daddy does for a living <laughs> anyway enough of my self-promotion so yeah after he sort of makes his way through the atoll and gets to Traden for his dirt he meets helen who is named after helen of troy and she is played by gene triplehorn who i think we can all agree is one of the sexiest women who's ever lived right Absolutely. But not in this movie. No, it's not a sexy movie in general. It is. It's all just everyone's suffering and, you know, so bleak that, yeah, no one's sexy. I love Jean Triplehorn, but she's just sort of nagging him. It's a thankless role. This is supposed to and most of this movie is supposed to be taking place on a boat while they're kindling love for each other. And he learns how to be a 
uh, a father figure and a partner to this woman. And he's just sort of like grumpy and she's nagging yeah, at him. Is that really what the movie is about, though? Like, I feel like that's what the movie is supposed to be about. But really, I think it's about a guy who hates women. He does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, uh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right. All right. But anyways, Jean Triplehorn, she's she's great. Just not in this movie. Nobody's good in this movie. At this point, I realized it's kind of funny because like all the white people or the whiteness of their skin is disappearing, which totally makes sense is that everyone's got this awful like red orange tan and like their skin. Even Jean Triplehorn doesn't look good because her tan is all just like... Yeah. It looks like a sunburn. Makeup. Yeah. And it's all They've just... They've got that Donald Trump orange yeah, exactly. to them. So it's like... This is what's going to happen. Everyone's just going to look like shit and be totally sunburned and like everyone's going to have the same red skin tone. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Another character we meet here is the Nord, because I guess he's a Norseman. And he's played by a British actor named Gerard Murphy, who like he's in Batman Begins. He's like a minor character in that. He shows up and stuff. He's got a real mug, but he's like one of the smokers and he's scoping out Helen's quote-unquote child, Enola, played by Tina Majorino, who was previously known as the little girl in the Andre, the movie about the seal. Did you guys see that one? What? Yeah, there was a, <laughs> it's a kid's movie. But there was a trailer that would play at my theater, and I would just be so annoyed by it, because like at the end of the trailer, she'd always go, but he's my best friend! Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> about the seal. So I wasn't Aww. super stoked when she showed up as the child in this, but I've come to really appreciate her nuanced performance. She was in Napoleon Dynamite and Veronica Mars as Mac. And so, yeah, she's, I thought she was great. She's a good child actor for sure. And I'm glad she's gone on to sort of have a career after Waterworld. Yeah. But the important thing to know about her character of Enola is she has this mysterious tattoo on her back that supposedly tells the way to the mythical dry land, a land where there's actually land because there is no dry land here in Waterworld and everybody wants to get to dry land. The hilarious thing about this tattoo is it's literally just a globe with an arrow pointing upwards. So... <laughs> If that's the directions, <laughs> I think it'd be pretty easy to understand, like, just go that way. But anyway, everyone wants to get their hands on her to get this information, including the Nord, who is working for We Will Find Out, the Smokers. But um, the Mariner goes to the store that's run by Helen, Jean Triplehorn, and he basically buys everything she has with his chits that he's earned. Like, he literally takes the shelves off of the store because she barely has anything. She's got like a tomato plant. He takes that and like the Nord sidles up to him and asks him to buy him a drink and the Mariner like pushes him away basically. Like the Mariner is such a jerk to everyone. Like he's pretty much a jerk. Now we'll find out why. Why would you buy an extra shot for some dick that just came up to you though? Come on, fuck that. Like, yeah. No, definitely not. I'm just wondering like this atoll, the way they're surviving is they're trying to literally grow plants from their dead and they've actually got it. They've got places to walk around. They've got shelter and they're giving away the plants for some more dirt. They already have a system that works, right? Why are they just letting them walk away with all of their stuff? Troy, you've put way more thought into their ecosystem than I ever have. <laughs> like, I never even thought about how they were sustaining themselves. Yeah, maybe the dirt is more important than the plants that they can also already reproduce. It's all about the soil and the nutrients. 
Well, at one point, the Mariner tells them you're dying. So right, yeah. I think we're right. supposed to think that, like, yeah, they've got a system, but it's not really sustaining them. It's helping them, like, hold on by a thread, but it's not going to. It's no barter town. No, no, it's no barter. It's not thriving. It's dying. But Helen is really intrigued by the Mariner because he's got this dirt, and so she's pretty insistent that he must know where dry land is. And this is a theme that's going to come back over and over as she sort of nags him about it. But the Mariner takes all her shit and he tries to leave. But all these atollers who live in the atoll are like coming at him and they've got like their daughter in tow and they want him to impregnate their daughter so that they can survive. They can continue to propagate. But the Mariner is not interested in that. And he goes to leave. And so they're like, no one refuses some sweet poontang. And so <laughs> and so they grab him. And when they grab him, one of the guys finds out that he's got gills behind his ears and yells out, mutation! So we know that the mariner is a mutant. But that's why they, they all turned on him is because he, he wouldn't put out. Yes. No, are you sure? I sure it wasn't just like he got on the... I feel like he was getting on the boat and then the people who were watching him realized that he was a mutant and that was the real... Like, they were upset that... No. Really? No. Okay, I knew they were upset, but I feel like the final straw was something else was just finding well, the out final straw is they they attack him and they all start fighting and then he falls into the pool with some other dudes and he stabs one guy and kills him so they're like now he's killed somebody so now they feel that they've got the right to imprison him yeah but when the marshal comes he's like that was that was uncalled for that was he was following the rules or whatever so like it's all kind of messy like well i can explain though in the ulysses cut we get a ah. scene after they apprehend him we get a scene where they hold a meeting and like they've gone through his boat and they've taken all the shit that he has on his boat. And one of the guys who's the guy that gets killed by the deacon later, the guy who squeals and tells like he's hanging from one yeah, of the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and he's going through the stuff and he's got like a yo-yo and he's like, this is what he uses to strangle people. And then he pulls out a thigh master and he's like, this must be some sort of weapon, too. And so they're like. <laughs> They're all like, oh, he must be in league with the smokers. Like they think that that's in the Ulysses cut. Yes, this is all in the Ulysses cut. And meanwhile, Helen is trying to defend him. And she's like, no, I think he knows the way to dry land. But they're like, no, no, we got to kill him. We got to kill him. So they vote to kill him. The way people treat him makes no sense to me. And I'm going to nitpick this where this guy is the most like important person in the world because he's got gills. Like, why wouldn't you make him king? He can go down and get you fish and do whatever you want. And like, why does everybody want to kill the Mariner just because he's a mutant? It makes no sense. You would just be like, I'm going to follow this guy because he's got these great powers and he's like half fish. That's ridiculous. Chris, are you living in the same world that I'm living in? Like, look at all the racism that we deal with. Look at people don't like things that are different. They reject it. I don't think it's that hard to believe that this is the way they would go. They would be fearful and scared. It's the same thing with the X-Men. Like, why don't people think like, oh, the X-Men, great. Let's just have them do all the bad stuff. Yeah, it would be awesome. Like, and even if like Dennis Hopper, if anything, should like keep him and then, you know, make him do his dirty work or something like that, not just kill him. And like, it just seems like something like... Any smart person, yeah, sorry, it's the dumb people would want to kill him because he's a freak, yeah. but anybody who's got half a brain should be like, 
let's capture this motherfucker and get him to do all of our dirty work because he sure. can breathe underwater. Come on. Like you're trying to fill in a, a giant blank, which is we, we never really established much of what these people do survive at all. We don't know their culture. They're surviving. They have a, a place that they hang out in. What do the people in the road warrior do? Do you ask those questions? <laughs> like, what the fuck do they do? They make gas. People in post-apocalyptic societies don't do anything. They, and they have a plan <laughs> and they, they want to get to paradise, yeah. right? They've got a plan. They make gas and they're already in paradise. Yeah. What kind of health coverage do they have? And uh, yeah, <laughs> are they getting any retirement? Uh, yeah, I don't know. And when Mad Max shows up, they know exactly what they need him for. Nobody's arguing that this is as good as road warrior, but still. I mean, you can ask these questions of any post-apocalyptic movie. I'm just saying this is in Waterworld. People kind of like row their boats around and bump into each other. Yeah, but you know who's doing something is Gregor, the character that we meet next, because he's an inventor. He's trying yeah. to invent a hot air balloon that can take them on journeys and try to find dry land. Which in the theatrical cut. There was a lot missing from what he... It didn't really explain what he was doing until he accidentally launched it and, and went up in the air. Gregor's trying to get them to dry land. He's, a, he's on team Enola and Helen. He's trying to figure out where they can go. And he knows that the life at the atoll is not sustainable. So he's trying to get them out of there. But he's played by a character actor named Michael Jeter, who showed up in a lot of 90s movies. Um, he's a really fun character actor. Sadly, he died, I think, of AIDS. He was in a couple of Terry Gilliam films. Yeah, Fisher King. I really enjoy him. I think he's a fun presence. Yeah, he's great. And he's, you know, he's playing like the, the wacky sort of wizardy professor type of archetype. He's the one guy I think was cast well. Like he was kind of spot on. And he's got a fun accent. He sounds sort of, I don't know, Dutch or German or something. And he's, you know, he's fascinated by the Mariner. He doesn't want to kill him. And at one point he even like, he calls him like Ichthosapien or something. And he goes to visit him in the shark cage that they, they're keeping the Mariner in. And he sort of talks to him, but the Mariner isn't, is being salty towards him and not giving him any information. Troy, do you have any more questions about the ecosystem? <laughs> I of, have a lot of, of questions, but I'm not, again, like I'll keep them to myself. And I'll, I'll think about those later on my own time. What happens next is we get the smoker attack on the atoll, which is basically the uh, Waterworld stunt show on film. And this is led by our villain, the Deacon, the Deacon of the D's, Dennis Hopper. You know, he's in full post blue velvet Dennis Hopper. I'm going to be the craziest guy in the screen mode. And, you know, so he's going full cartoon villain i mean he literally seems like he's come out of a like 80s cartoon or something they're attacking the atoll with all these different like they've got jet skis they've got water skis that are like brought in on a seaplane which was yeah. piloted by jack black did you guys catch that yeah. that was jack yep. black yeah early role for him but yeah at this point it just becomes a awesome just stunt show and i'm going to argue for the quality of this film here because yeah, you can nitpick stuff about the movie and think it's stupid, but like this kind of thing, we don't see this at all anymore. And I miss this kind of shit. Like sure. crazy yeah. stunts. And there's fucking stunts in here that Costner's doing. Like he has some moments in this movie yeah. where he he's throwing down and he's hanging off the thing or whatever. Honestly, when he does the swimming in Aquaman, you know, 
stuff that the Mariner can only do, I'm all, I'm all for it. it. It's great. And I wish they did even more of it, you know, frankly, because like, you know, yeah. when he jumps right out and he's able to, you know, swim really fast and do this and that, it's great. Yeah, those are great moments. It's very Errol Flynn. I read this morning that he almost died. Yeah. Uh, like in one of these stunts where he's like strapped to the mast of his trimaran and there was a yep. a gale that came by. And anyways, yeah, this you need this in a Mad Max ripoff because this is kind of what Mad Max is all about is crazy stunts. Right. And it's a siege. Yeah, you're right. People being dragged by a airplane on water skis, <laughs> jumping over walls and Come on. Yeah. Like, how could you not appreciate that on some level, especially since now everything's CG, everything's green screen. Like, there's no green screen in this. Like, oh, there is some shots. Oh, there's a lot of green screen in this, actually. Well, but, but for the most part, for the action sequences, yeah. there's really not a lot of green screen. It's real stunts. It's real crazy, like, vehicles doing crazy shit. But it does, the whole time, look like a SeaWorld show. Like, this yes. This looks exactly like what you said you can now see at Universal Studios. Yes. And with the James Newton Howard music piping in here. Blasting. <laughs> yes. Well, I think there's a really easy way to fix Waterworld, and that's actually not make it that everything is water and like throw mm-hmm. in a fucking island right <laughs> i kept yeah. thinking that through the i i wanted desperately i mean because you're spending so much time yeah. on this guy's trimaran troy i agree with you it becomes a problem definitely but i'm not having a problem here here i'm having fun oh no and but because you're on a set piece like we just needed more set pieces there could have been a little island somewhere that people battle it out and or totally the, the island could be toxic so they can't use it you could come up with anything but just being out on the water forever it's a problem it's disconcerting it is really i mean like there's something subconsciously so bleak about it where you're like ah it's it's almost like cast away in a weird way where you know you just they, where there's no score and you're so isolated for such a long time that it... It's a visual thing. You need things for your eyes to fix on. So, you know, yes. if you want solitude, you can pull that off, but you just need to be able to lock onto something and not be on such a small... You're on a raft. I mean, it's just... But imagine if that was what he wanted to do, is to do something like All is Lost or something, you know, super yeah. bleak. Like, that that would have worked. And, you know, because you get that sense anyway. And I think that's right. part of the reason why nobody came out with their fists in the air is because they're like, oh, man, I've been out on out at sea for freaking <laughs> yeah, two yeah. hours. <laughs> and it's just like, it wears on you. You're right. And you're touching upon another thing that I think is a problem with the movie, and that is the tone of the movie whiplashes back and forth between like when they're out on the water and it's bleak and stuff and then they go to like the Exxon Valdez and it's like oh they play the Peter Gunn theme (laughs) oh my god that was that was the moment where I just was checking to make sure my wife wasn't hearing what I was watching on TV you should have invited her into the room she'd probably be like this is a great film but just the the setup like oh these guys are so bad that they listen to the Peter Gunn theme as they're driving around their hot rods inside the the Valdez (laughs) pretty cringy but at least that was a, a set. That's what we were just talking about. Like when you're on the Valdez, you at least can kind of like relax a little bit and feel like there's stuff to look at. However yeah. lame it was with all the 
<laughs> it was like that cartoon alleyway with thugs because they have these like burn barrels everywhere. It's very 90s. Like I feel like there were a lot so of like, 90s. RoboCop or whatever. Yeah. There'd be like sets like that. One thing I will say, and like just to come back to this sequence, I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff in it. Like the way that the deacon communicates with the, all of the elements going on is he's got these guys mm-hmm. doing semaphore and stuff, which I think is a fun detail. What's happened is that Gregor has accidentally activated his hot air balloon. So that's gone off. Even though he was supposed to take Enola and Helen with him, it's gone off and they, they're not able to get on board. He tries to throw him a rope and they, it doesn't reach them. So now they've got to save the Mariner whose cage is being lower, lowered into this recycling goo. So we have this very Spielbergian kind of thing going on where you've got this crazy action sequence and then little things are sort of playing into the fact that he can't get out of the cage or that they're trying to get to him at the cage. And, you know, you have what is like a bunch of setups and complications and payoffs. And I feel like this is something that is kind of missing from action sequences now. For the most part, yeah. There's so, there's... There's something like the, the, the plot points are, are well thought out and how everything, you know, the, how the dominoes fall works. I feel like if a Spielberg was directing it, it would be 10 times more powerful. There's just something sure. missing in the direction of it that doesn't make the parts all click together quite the way they should. But I feel like if you're re- reading it on paper and everything that you say totally makes sense and, and does pay off. Yeah, I kind of agree with Chris. Like, I, I just feel like for how large this was with all these vehicles and everything that you had in this massive set i actually don't think it was constructed or choreographed that well like i i get what you're saying like it it tried to put all the pieces in there like he's trapped he needs to get out there's all these other things happening and that nobody knows that he's gonna die except for like one person who's trying to get the key to get him out of the cage so you have this setup but it just couldn't quite put the pieces together and again honestly for how massive this set piece was i i don't know visually it just didn't look interesting enough to really know like where i was i mean it's essentially just a wall it's like it's just this large bowl that's kind of sitting on the sea so it didn't seem like there was enough pitfalls or traps or things that that you could play off of I can't quite put my finger on it, but uh, you know, watching it in 4K, I, I did enjoy just uh, you could really feel the rust and like you know the textures of all the yeah. items and the and the sets and and I feel like with a better director like Ridley Scott or something like that, where he really puts you in the world and you can almost smell what it's like to be there, that all could have paid off, but they don't quite put you there you know i mean and i think i think they were trying but they just didn't succeed well the smokers have this giant gun that they're shooting up the walls with right the gun is so powerful that it's the guy who's the the gunner can't even see because the oil's getting all over his mask and then when the mariner and now enola and helen finally get out through the gate and there's this whole thing where they've got to open the gate and they've got to go up on top of the gate and then jump down all this stuff They finally open the gate and then to sort of get out of the situation, they fire this giant grappling gun at that ship that's shooting everything and then pull it towards 
uh, the deacon's vessel, which causes it to explode. And like, again, I thought that was a cool, like cause and effect kind of like thing that then ends the sequence. Yeah. I, I also appreciate that Enola, it was very helpful. She's telling him, yo, push this in and push that. You got to push here and then pull there. And she's not just an annoying kid that's like, help save me. He's, she's actually saving everybody by telling him what to do in this very complicated gate opening sequence, which I thought was really cool. But I mean, you know, yeah. Is it as good as Spielberg could do? No. Do the sets look as great as Ridley Scott would be making them? <laughs> no. But these guys would never touch this fucking movie with a 10 foot <laughs> yeah. pole. James Cameron would. I think the reason why I can appreciate this and maybe, you know, it doesn't work as much for other people is because. Because you were drunk and high when you saw it. <laughs> well, no, but I don't even need to be drunk and high to enjoy it because I can be like, yes, it's dumb, but they put so much effort into this i mean it's like this is why this podcast exists like it's all right here in Waterworld. it's encapsulated perfectly here it's like intense ambition coupled with unlimited money and like a completely dumb idea it's just a magic formula for entertainment for me. I get it. Sebastian, you are winning me over. You're winning me over. I almost <laughs> want to watch the Ulysses cut with you after this because of your passion. Like I would be happy to watch it. I'm trying to care about this movie, Sebastian. I get it. It's not like I don't understand why you think it's dumb because it's fucking dumb. And it's not like I don't understand that it has problems. In fact, we can just kind of get into this whole big next chunk of the movie, which I think is kind of one big problem more or less and it's as you've been detailing troy now we've got our principal characters of the mariner helen and enola all on his trimaran and he doesn't want them there and they're causing all sorts of problems like enola's found his crayons and she's drawing on the the ship with his her crayons and that pisses him off and then helen comes to her defense and is like she's just a little girl and then something else happens that pisses him off and it just starts to feel like oh god yeah this feels like most of the movie it's a big chunk essentially you're you're like on a fishing trip with a family that hates each other (laughs) and every once in a while they bump into another boat and meet like a rapist it's just miserable when i saw it the first time though i thought that this was actually the most successful chunk of the movie because i was like oh this is where we're learning who he is and you know there's actual character stuff here and it's actually this in a way works more than the other stuff like yeah maybe it's annoying because they don't get along but to me almost like this was more interesting than than the rest of the other big action stuff and like you could actually i feel like if you if you extrapolated it out this is where that mythology could come into play you know where it's like what are the rules of the water world and you know you have to make trades and you know each person has their stories and can tell you more about you know how their lives changed i just feel like there's there's potential here like it feels like it should be that but i don't know like for me None of these pieces were working. Like, none of the elements of this were gelling. And the way they're dressed, there was just something about it. You have this triangle with this man and this woman and the, and a little kid. And that the kid, too, is, like, a problem. Because then it just feels like it's a younger movie for a younger mm-hmm. audience. So yeah. it kind of—and just the way they were dressed in these ridiculous costumes, it kind of felt like a Jim Hansen movie with no puppets, no magic— 
and just a man and a woman and a kid arguing. Well, I'm going to chafe up against you with the costumes because I think the costumes are fun. And at one point, Helen goes to give herself to the Mariner so that he doesn't throw Enola off the side right. of the, the ship. And she like takes off her clothes and you get a really clear body double shot of <laughs> her from behind because you can just tell the girl they got is like smaller than uh, Jean Triplehorn. But I mean, I don't know. There are little moments peppered in through here that I enjoy. Mostly I agree with you, Troy, but then there'll be like a moment where like he'll get pissed off and he'll go up onto the top of the mast. And then we get this fucking cool shot of him like on top of the mast. And you see like that boat is really on the water. You can tell he's kind of scared. Like he's like, like <laughs> I'm going to fall off this mast, you know? And it's like shit like that. It's just enough to get me through this section of the movie without completely hating it. Sebastian, don't you like the fact that he's such a dick to them? I mean, like- I love it. It's kind of great that, yeah, he tosses her <laughs> off the side. He's like, we don't need you. Put her over. I'm like, oh I think my that's God, I love a great so twist much. to like the hero who's supposed to be like, oh, this honorable guy. And then he's like, we need to ditch her, broomer, yeah. off the side. And you know, I'm like, that's kind of great. He's a total dick. He can't stand them. He doesn't want them around. She offers to have sex with him. He's like, no. And then he throws the little girl off the side and tosses her off the side of the boat. And she can't swim, even though she lives in freaking water world. Yeah. Can we talk, unpack that for a second? What's going on with that? I mean, like nobody ever bothered to teach. Her come to on. Swim. That's like not being able to walk down the street. What the hell's going on? Do they explain it? No, they don't. No. Chris, they don't. Ah. <laughs> Well, the reason is we'll find out that she used to live on land. I missed, I totally missed that. Yeah, she, it's at the end of the movie. Yeah, I missed it too. Oh, because she says like, uh, this is my home. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I missed that. How, how could that have been? You need to watch this like five more times. <laughs> is that why she had a, a map with an arrow pointing up? Yes. To get her back home? That's where you go. Right. Yeah, and wait till you find out where dry land is because I have information. Yes, I read. I read it too. But it's not in the movie, but it's great. Is it in the Ulysses cut? It sure is, yes. So I know where it is, because you made me watch the Ulysses cut. Right, but you've forgotten because you don't love and treasure this movie. No, I remember. I'm just I I won't I won't say. I won't spoil it. It's ingenious. A couple of cool things happen, like the seaplane comes and attacks them. Helen tries to help by harpooning the seaplane, which kills the gunner. But now they're tethered to the seaplane and it's going in a circle and it's damaging the mast and everything. And then like Jack Black gets out and actually shoots the rope off of it at some point. But they basically fuck up the trimaran. And so the Mariner gets so pissed that he then takes his machete or whatever and like cuts off Helen's hair, which then gives poor Gene Triplehorn a bad haircut. Yeah. Like it's, it's almost as if I feel like Kevin Costner was really feeling insecure about his hair. And so he's like, well, fuck it. I'm going to fuck up their hair too. And then like, and then, and then when she tells me my hair sucks, I'm going to fucking throw her off the boat. Like, <laughs> I feel like this is a man dealing with his hair loss, it, like really poorly. <laughs> that actually makes this movie kind of amazing. Yeah. If this is just a story about a middle-aged man who wants to be on his fucking yacht and is dealing with hair loss, I love Waterworld. If that's what it's about. <laughs> and hates his child and wife. Yeah, hates and he his wants family. To throw them overboard. You got to read the subtext. You got to look at the subtext. Isn't there a scene in the Ulysses cut where he's like, 
has a little Walkman and he's like listening to Christopher Cross. He's got a CD. No, he's listening to Miles Davis. Okay. He somehow has a CD player. Sailing by Christopher Cross. Is that what you? No, you wish. No, that would be amazing. If that, (laughs) if he had a CD player that was playing Sailing by Christopher Cross. I would give this movie 10 stars. It would be my favorite <laughs> movie of Absolutely. our fucking time. And I would not take any bullshit from anyone. Yeah. I'd be like, he fucking plays sailing from Christopher Cross. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with this movie. I think I could fall all in love with Waterworld if it had Christopher Cross playing on the CD player. Sadly, he's got good taste in jazz. He's listening to Miles Davis. The scene is in the movie, but it's just they've cut out the boombox that he's found for whatever reason. And dude, that plane scene is really awesome. I feel like that's one of the better action scenes in in the movie. It is. Yeah, it's yeah. a real plane flying yeah, around it was great. and shit. Like you said, the overhead shots, they just really sell what's that it's actually practical and happening and it, it's really imaginative. It's great. And again, it's using that sort of Spielbergian cause and effect thing, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like you sympathize because she thinks she's doing the right thing by shooting it, but then you see like, oh, shit like yeah you haven't taken in consideration that this is a boat with a giant mast and now you're yep. stuck to it and it's those kind of details that make me like appreciate this movie where it's like it's not just stupid action for stupid action's sake you know like if you're a fan of like heroic fantasy like i am this movie kind of satisfies in a weird way yeah like that plane is pretty amazing that where it's the plane and they're yeah. shooting at each other from a boat. It, it's pretty great. You're right. Like, I feel if you just put on, like, some really cool music and turned off the sound and watched some of the scenes with a whole different soundtrack, you'd probably get a lot more out of the movie. Because I think the filmmaking is solid. There are some good shots. There's some good sequences of action that I think are well-constructed. Especially today. Like, I feel like there are things about this movie that feel antiquated in a nice way to me, where I was like, oh, yeah, they used to make action sequences like this. They used to really construct the scenes and think about what the complications were going to be and all that kind of stuff. Now it's just fucking CG comes at you a million miles an hour. You know, it's just, there's something here I find refreshing. But what I don't find refreshing is the crazy drifter scene where we get twitchy drifter Kim Coates, the rapist who shows up. This scene kind of sucks for a lot of reasons. One, it's gross and sort of rapey because he shows up and he's, you know, obviously insane because he's been out in the water for so long. But the Mariner really wants resin, I guess, to fix his boat. It's never really clear why he wants resin so bad. And like Helen wants food because apparently the Mariner doesn't need to eat food. So they're bartering with this guy and he's got paper. Um, you know, which is a big seller in Waterworld because nobody's got dry paper. And so the Mariner's like, yeah, you can have sex with Helen for to trade for that paper. And it wasn't even like a trick or anything. He was literally just going to let him rape Helen. And this is our hero that we're supposed to <laughs> be siding yeah, with. Yeah, how does that jive with how he was like, oh, I didn't want to do it with you because you didn't want it. and But then he's still okay with this? Like, Yeah, he's like whoring them out. And I think that, and the guy even asked if he could have the little girl. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He says that. Super problematic. And the Mariner kind of hesitated for a moment. He's like, hmm, nah, you can just have Helen. But he had to think about it. This scene is is rough for all of those reasons. It's also just kind of like we already had a scene between him and another guy in a boat. Like yeah. it feels repetitive. This feels just like wheel spinning. Like they needed something to take up time. 
So we're going to throw this scene. Like, this guy has nothing to do with the villains. He's not, you know, he's just a guy. You don't think they were just trying to make it stretch out to that two hour and 20 minute mark that they needed? Right. I think they were. I think they were just trying to do that. They wanted an epic and they just wanted it to be long. Yeah. And all that happens is the Mariner decides not to let him screw Helen. And then he goes down there and fights with a guy and kills him. So it's like all it does is, oh, I guess the Mariner is started to like them a little bit more. He's not willing to let them be raped by a horrible creep. And also just the setup for the trade didn't make any sense to me at all. Like I I get it that like paper would be kind of an interesting thing, but the fact that this guy would basically sell other people for dry paper. We later see that he actually has a lot of paper down below. Right. He's already got some national geographics and shit. So why is he so horny for paper and not Helen? If you're having a whole scene built around trading, like make it something that's so fucking valuable that they can't live without it, not paper. Like you could make a copy of her tattoo onto the paper and then it's as as valuable as Enola is. This is true. They don't ever touch on that. But he has crayons. He He could just draw the image on the side of his boat. That's kind of what I don't understand why everyone's like, this is so important. Like it's tattooed on her back. Like, why don't you write it on, copy it onto some other thing that you won't get wet and won't lose its whatever. And you can have another map to the secret place we're not going to talk about yet. Yeah, it's dumb. It's it's stupid. The whole thing with the tattoo on her back is stupid. They needed a second piece or, you know, like in Romancing the Stone where they fold the map and then that becomes the real like mystery. You know, they, they, there just needed to be some some other piece to the uh, to the map, I feel like. But anyway, after the crazy drifter is killed, the girls are still hungry. So the Mariner agrees to get them something to eat. And the way he does this is by tying a rope to himself and then going out in the wake of the boat and allowing a giant monster fish to come up and eat him. And then he like spear guns through the fish and gets them some sweet, yummy looking giant fish steaks. This scene features some early CGI. Like when you see the fish, it's a pretty basic looking monster from the mid nineties, but it's so brief that I appreciate that they don't linger on it. Like all you see is like a flash of it. Yeah. And you are thinking like, God, what is in the water now if there aren't like land masses and everything? And so we find out it's a giant fucking fish. I actually love this scene too. It makes no sense at all. Um, It actually poses more questions. (laughs) I didn't even get that. The Mariner doesn't eat. Is that what you said? He does, but it just, he doesn't seem, it's not a priority to him, apparently. He's got the dad bod. He can just burn it off for days and then he's not But these people have been starving. This guy's like desperate. We open up in the film where he's desperately trying to grow like a single lime. That's so he can make mezcal drinks. That's like. (laughs) (laughs) So he can make his margaritas. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. And then, and then they finally get to the point where they just are, are getting so angry at him and they're starving and they're so hungry. And he's like. Oh, well, I'll just I'll just get you something to eat then. And he just dives in and gets some giant masses of food that they've got extra right amounts of it. And also, you'd think that that you could use the teeth to make tools and you could do all kinds like blubber or oil from these things like Yeah, like he could be doing this all day long. Everybody's starving. He's like, "I'll just I'll fucking go get you food." Fine. But he's such a jerk that he won't even do that for like people on his boat. Like he's just such a dick. He'd rather just get little limes and stuff or tomatoes 
than, yeah, just fish for giant fish. It's really hard to justify in the context of the story, but it's a fun scene in the movie. Now, the next thing that happens is there's an ambush by the smokers because Deacon is hot to get Tina Majorino and her tattoo. So they've set up this flotilla out in the water where they've got these dead people strung up like puppets and they're trying to lure in the mariner you know making them think that they these are friendly people and like the mariner at one point's like calls out to them in Portuguese greek he says because yeah. that's the language they speak so we get some kick-ass world building there well he speaks that at the beginning too right i remember thinking like th- there were subtitles at the beginning and then literally like hour and a half later you get the second set of subtitles and i'm like right yeah what is, why but not much really happens because the mariner sees that underneath this flotilla they've got jet skis pulled underwater which is cool i like that idea and so they make their escape as the jet skis pop out and they're trying to snare them in this big net but the mariner pulls this cool move where yeah. he sort of like hangs off the side of the oh, trimaran yeah. that's a showstopper that's in the trailer and you're like yes that's it but then after that is when we get one of my favorite sequences now the mariner's pissed off because Helen's been basically lying to him about what the tattoo on Enola's back is. So they get into this fight because he's pissed off because he's gotten winged by the deacon. The deacon shot him as they were escaping and he got hit. So he's he's winged. He's a little injured. He's pissed off. And, you know, he wants to know what the tattoo is about. And Helen's like, it's the way to dry land. And so the Mariner's like, fuck this. I'm sick of hearing about dry land. You want to see dry land? I'm going to show you. So he puts her into this diving bell that he has. And he takes her down, 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 down underwater and takes her on a tour of sunken Denver. That's the city it is. Ooh, Denver. That's why there's a ski slope. Okay, so I didn't catch that. Yeah, it's Denver. So we get this sort of combination of model work and green screen or whatever they did at the time. A nice touch that they have going is that the Mariner has flares and he's dropping flares so she can see. So you see these sort of sinking flares and there's some really fun wide shots where you see them and they're really small and they're going down, down, down. I love when you see like a giant ship sinking into the depths underwater and you like, you see the scale of it and you can, you can see how like far underwater it's going. Like I recently watched the Poseidon, the original Poseidon adventure and there's some cool model shots of a ship submerged. There's something so haunting and ominous to me when you see underwater shots like that. The abyss with the sun submarines sinking that's pretty haunting i just really love that kind of shit so we get a whole sequence where we're going through this sunken city and you know you see all the buildings are all sort of rotted away because of the seawater at one point they like come by a sunken submarine that's just sort of sitting in the middle of the street and then the mariner brings him down to the seafloor and he digs up some dirt off the floor and he holds it up to the diving bell to show her like this is where i've been getting my dirt there's no dry land it's all underwater yeah this scene for me was like finally like if you're gonna get an apocalypse movie this was the set piece that 
sort of delivered because it was like you said it's a sort of great model work and you're seeing a destroyed you're seeing the destroyed earth like it finally delivers yeah. and it made me realize how much this high concept movie just wasn't working like the idea of having no land at all just water and that sounds like a kind of a good idea on paper let's have mad max in the ocean because the earth has changed but once you're out there sitting on that yacht on its trimaran for an hour, like I said, you like you need a set piece for for something to be where you need visually to remind us that we're in a world we're not just sort of shooting on location in the water. This was the one scene where I was like, I love this. This is the kind of stuff I love. It's definitely a little primitive by today's standards, but I really like it. Like they yeah. obviously shot real footage of them underwater. At oh man, in the 4K, you can totally tell the image breaks up when it goes to, yeah, the, sure. to the, you're like, oh man, I can barely make this out. This this feels like I'm watching a DVD rip. And then when it cuts to their close up, it's bam, back into the 4K. But this totally does you know, expand the world. And this is what you wanted from this, Troy, like you were saying, the high concept. Like, this is what I wanted to see. I wanted to see them yeah. come across the tip of the Empire State Building, peeking out the water or something like that. You know, they should have done more with, with things like this. We could have spent basically the whole movie, and if you think about it, with sets that wouldn't be that complicated. Like you said, just, just the tip of a building sticking out of the water yeah. or something, just enough to let you know, like, Oh my God, this is the destruction of the earth is so magnificent that they're actually climbing on the tip tops of, of buildings and you could be swimming underwater and swimming through buildings and getting that real like Thundar the Barbarian kind of world that they live in instead of just water, which just is getting so boring to be on. So what you're saying is you'd be up for a sequel if it was underwater world. <laughs> Nice. You should do a mashup where instead of going to Denver or sunken underwater, he actually goes to Naboo and then Jar Jar's leading him down <laughs> to the underwater sunken city of underwater world. Yeah, not a bad idea. I just wish there was more of this scene. I thought this scene really, this was cool. I, I loved being here. I loved being in, in this environment. And I've, I've kind of wanted half the movie to be like this. And for Rodney, I just want to say, uh, wouldn't she get the bends if she went down that low? And uh, mm. I was always questioning this, just the physics of this. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the physics of this are completely questionable. However, they show you a shot of Enola hovering over what looks like some sort of pressure oh, gauge. Right, yeah. So they establish that there's more going on than just she's in it's like, yeah. you know, an air pocket. Right. It still doesn't make sense. Again, nothing in this movie does. That's why yeah, it's it cool. works like, for me because you just, you can't do anything but roll over all the impossibilities. <laughs> it's cool enough that you don't give a shit. Yeah. They come back up and there's this silly scene where the smokers are coming up to the trimoran like disguised as sharks with like fake shark fins on their is heads. Is that what was going on? I was like, yes, I didn't get that either. Oh, I was just like, is that a machine or something? I yeah. was like, no, it's the smokers are going underwater and they're sneaking up on them but as sharks. As like giant <laughs> jaws sharks. We skipped over a brief scene where the mariner has a change of heart and tries to give the little girl swimming lessons. Yeah. He like pulls the ultimate dad move where like, yeah. 
I'm going to take you into the pool and teach you to swim. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. And there's some really moving shots of Kevin Costner and Tina Majorino like underwater with slow motion. Totally. And they're happy. And there's this like dreamy music playing. Like, it's like the thin red line. It's like shot so dreamy. Right. Like it's Terrence Malick yeah. all of a sudden. But <laughs> totally. you've got this goofball and like a post-apocalyptic wetsuit swimming around. And his hair is like so thinning and streaming elegantly in the water. Yeah, he he finally, his dad bod and the swimming hair all came together in this scene where he was giving swimming lessons. It's establishing now that the Mariner cares about Enola. The smokers capture Enola and they are destroying the boat and the Mariner saves himself and Helen by diving into the water and having her breathe through his mouth and so she can like breathe through his gills and we see like his gills like popping up from behind his ears. That was decent use of CG or whatever it was. I think that was makeup. And it's a, you know, cheesy way to get them to kiss like yeah. underwater, but if you don't want to die, you make out with me. <laughs> and I just want to say for the record, I I I know the gills I mentioned they were ridiculous, but I'm on board with that shit. That kind of stupid mutant stuff is cool. Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind is back in 1995, it's either this or you're watching like Jade or some like (laughs) erotic thriller about like a horny middle-aged man. For sure. It was slim pickings during this era. The 90s was... Hey, Batman forever. Come on. Right, which I also like, which is also a terrible movie. <laughs> yeah, so so it's like in 1995, this is like fucking crack cocaine to me yeah. as like a fantasy Agreed. movie loving yes. person because everything else is like a thriller, like an erotic thriller starring Michael Douglas or something. Yeah, this was, we had one horror movie basically that was Jacob's Ladder. Right, even horror movies were dead because the slasher movie, did, there, there was like nothing fun. Everything was over. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino. Tino is great, but like not everyone else who was copying him yeah. was. It was fucking slim pickings. It was the death of genre movies yeah. for sure. All right. So there's this scene between Dennis Hopper and the Deacon and Enola where he's trying to get information out of her. It's a really goofy scene because Dennis Hopper is kind of like trying to relate to her as a kid. So he's being kind of like kitty aggro to her and she's being like kitty aggro back to him. It's really odd. And the only reason why I even bring it up is because it's sort of indicative of one of the movie's flaws, which is the tonal shifts are kind of wildly off. Meanwhile, the other story we're following is the couple is left on their burning wreckage of their boat and they're definitely going to die because there's no way they can survive. And in their desperation, they decide to fuck because there's nothing else to do. You know, you know, she's like, why didn't you take me before? And the Mariner's like, you didn't want me then. And I mean, we haven't really talked about like. Kevin Costner's like drawly delivery like he's kind of trying to do like a kind of thing but he's still got that Kevin Costner thing well isn't it isn't it like you know Mad Max was trying to do the man with no name the kind of Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood was sort of doing in the westerns you know the the low tone sort of 
gruff nomad and and he's sort of riffing on that but it's not working at all yeah he's trying to be sort of ice cold yet like a hard shell you can't penetrate this shell there's can't get in here but it just sounds like i kept thinking like it's like forest gump uh-huh <laughs> on on water right because he just kind of has this it almost seems like there's mentally challenged at times when people are trying to talk to him and relate to him. Yeah. He just seems confused. Kevin Costner should have learned after so many, like 13 days, uh, Robin Hood, do not do accents. Don't try anything with your voice. Just speak the way you normally speak. And that's the only, like, if you look at all his roles, those are the ones where he, he does the best. You know, when Absolutely. he tries some kind of weird accent, it's like, no, don't. Was he trying to do an accent in here? There is some sort of accent going on there. I'm not sure what it is, but there's a slight it's a water hint world of, accent. Yeah, he's <laughs> trying to do something. He's trying to not sound like a guy who spends most of his time in a cornfield, which is how he sounds <laughs> yeah. normally. Like he's literally made movies about cornfields. He's like a mm -hmm. fucking cornfield in human form as an actor. <laughs> so like He's trying to do something that sounds a little more islandy or exotic, I think. I didn't catch that at all. I just thought he was mumbling. Yeah, it's it's in there. It's in there. It's pretty subtle. But then he goes down into the submerged portion of his boat and he finds some National Geographics and he finds some of Enola's drawings and he sees that she's drawing like animals and stuff that he can find in these pictures in the National Geographics that have been left behind by the ancients and that he starts to put things together like, oh, maybe... Enola knows what she's talking about. Maybe there is a dry land somewhere. But before they can really fully process that, Gregor shows up with his balloon to save them. And he takes them to this other, like, flotilla where there's a bunch of other Atoll survivors, including the Enforcer guy. In the Ulysses cut, they go to this new flotilla with the survivors, and then they get attacked by a pair of um, smokers who are on jet skis, which is why he has the jet ski where he goes to off to the thing, which oh, you don't really oh, get okay. explained in the theatrical cut. The Mariner kills these two smokers, and then he takes a jet ski back to his old fucked up ship because they've got some resin or whatever, and they're like you need to go help Enola. And he's like, nope. So it's like he's going back in his character arc like a step. Yeah. We assume now he cares about her, but he's like, nope, I don't care about her. Then he goes back to his old ship and then finds the drawings again. And then is like, well, okay, I guess I'll go back and help her. <laughs> Do you think he just found the, the paper and was like, oh shit, I forgot I had all this paper. Maybe I shouldn't have like tried to whore out these two women. <laughs> And then so he goes back to where the survivors are and they're like, how are you going to find where the the ship is? And he lights a bottle or something and throws it in the water and it ignites a trail of fuel that leads to the Exxon Valdez, which is how he finds where they are. In the theatrical cut, he just takes off on the jet ski and just magically finds the ship. Wait a minute, how, how does that not lead all the way to the Exxon Valdez and then blow it up? I'm picturing a, you know, Looney Tunes thing where someone with a little- Well, and it looks like a Looney Tunes thing. When he lights it on the water, <laughs> it does that thing like in a Looney Tunes cartoon, like where you're yeah, following the- Yeah, where the, the barrel of, of gunpowder, you totally. know, and then- That's what it looks like thing. in the movie. Yes. In the Honestly, movie. as you're explaining the differences between these two cuts like both those cuts that scene both these scenes are so muddled I, I don't even remember 
even after watching mm-hmm. it last night, I don't even remember like what was happening during that. Clearly, they never had a workable scene here. And so they ended up with this totally extended sequence that makes no sense because he's going back to his ship and then deciding, seeing things that he's already seen. And we've already made this connection that he thinks she's important now. He's already seen these pictures or whatever, and they're just doing it again. So it's like this weird Mm. repetition of a beat. And then then he's like, "Okay, I'll go help. It's totally weird and doesn't make sense and is bad. Anyway, he goes to infiltrate the D's, as it's called. And um, the deacon is holding like this Trump rally in front of everyone where he's basically just spouting bullshit because they haven't figured out the map because they're too stupid to figure it out. But he's like, well, we'll just tell him that I know where dry land is and we'll get everybody to get pumped up to get down below and bust out the giant oars and us there. Very apropos of today. Did you guys notice at all, like when during these scenes where you're on this giant set, you know, this boat and and you're definitely outside, but then when the camera turns around and it shoots towards, we're looking at the Deacon that looks like he's on like a stage or something. Like the Mm -hmm. lighting is totally off here. It's wrong. Yeah. It's, it's not matching. It must've been a reshoot or something. It was all probably done in Hollywood somewhere. But yeah, you can especially see it later when the Mariner confronts him and they're having this back and forth where the Mariner's down on the deck of the ship and it looks nothing like the same day or anything. It's completely not matching. Dennis Hopper's probably like, let's shoot this in my garage, guys. Like, I'm not doing any more work. Well, it it did. It looked like it was on a stage indoors and it was artificially lit. And then you're shooting to this bright, sunny day with all these people listening to him outside. I think some of this was like, shot in one of those tanks somewhere like how they did the titanic where they had like um walls that were painted like the sky around it so some of it looked like that like you're in a giant tank with a sort of fake back painted backdrop behind them or it looks like bad blue screening or something yeah yeah there's some weird compositing going on especially when shots of the deacon but it's like that a lot once you're on the Valdez ship. There's a lot of things that aren't matching with with lighting and set pieces. Right, because I'm sure they're trying to cobble together a workable climax and they probably didn't have enough coverage of things and whatever. So while this rally is going on, the Mariner is sneaking on board. At first, he climbs up the side of the ship. Can we talk about how inefficient the doling of the goods is, though? The smeat? It's like spam canned meat called smeat. Yeah, and, and c- cigarettes that everyone's like stomping on. It just reminds me of, you know, like Fury Road where he doles out the water yeah. and it just like turns into mud and you're just like, oh man, can't you just give it to the people in a nicer way? In Fury Road, yeah. That I know was, he's a villain. Yeah. He was trying to just piss him off and antagonize it's him. It's still just so funny that he's like, let me just throw all this shit out and everyone's going to stomp on it and ruin it. And I'm like, great. I think that whole scene in Fury Road with uh, Morton Joe, I think mm-hmm. That's inspired by Waterworld. It feels like it, yes. <laughs> it actually does. And what's he giving them? Water. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Huh? Maybe Waterworld's a little more influential than you think. Maybe this is the Ouroboros where the snake is eating itself, and now Waterworld is influencing Mad Max. You don't think that George Miller was like, Fuck you for ripping me off. I'm going to show you how this is done. This is what a real villain looks like. No, Sebastian, I think you're right. Wasn't the guy who wrote for 
wrote a comic that ended up being also writing Fury Road. So there is a connection. There right? is. Yes. It's that guy that you're talking about. The guy who wrote the comic that was the basically the screenplay for Fury Road oh, had an right. involvement in the Waterworld script early on. Yeah. So that, there is a connection. Okay. I did read that as well. It's like he do, he wasn't involved in the original script, but he was involved in something tangentially that played into right. the script eventually. So yeah, while the Mariner's climbing on board, and at one point he climbs up the ship, and then he jumps back down so that he can attack these jet skiers from above, and he holds them underwater to drown them so he can take their sweet outfits. And then he rides the jet ski back into the docking bay, is this when he gets the outfit that almost looks like the Postman? It is, yes. It's very similar to the Postman outfit. I was like, outfit. what's going on here? I know, <laughs> it it's so weird. so much like it. I think Kevin Costner has a thing about certain post-apocalyptic looks. Yeah. And he obviously likes post-apocalyptic stuff because he then did mm -hmm. the Postman, which was also a giant bomb that we'll probably have to talk about at some point, but it won't be as fun as this. No. But then what happens here, this is probably my favorite Enola moment because Enola's sitting in this back room with Nord, who's drinking, and he's just got to keep his eye on her while the deacon does his big speech. And so Enola decides she's going to psych out the Nord by giving him like the legend of the Mariner. And so we're getting this intercut with the Mariner make, making his way through the ship. And it's like, he doesn't have a name, so death can't find him. He doesn't have a home or people to care for. He's not afraid of anything, men least of all. He's fast and strong with a big wind. He can hear a hundred miles away and see a hundred miles underwater. He can hide in the shadow of a noon sun. He can be right behind you and you won't even know it till you're dead. <laughs> Love it. Like, she should have gotten the Oscar for that speech. And like you said, it's intercut with shots of Kevin Costner just sort of, like, bumbling through. Like, she's she's making this statement that he's unstoppable. And then you cut to Kevin Costner, he's just like, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, Looking a little out of shape and tired. <laughs> like, that's what I think about myself, like, while I'm walking through Target, you know? Like, in my fucking sweatpants and my flip-flops, I'm like... Yeah, you won't even see. I'm right behind you. You won't even know it till you're dead. It feels like the tra like. Uh, am I watching a trailer now? Like, did they make that into a trailer? I think I that might have been cut into the trailer. Yeah, yeah, it it felt like you know in the Terminator it works where he's like you know he'll hunt you down wherever you go blah 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 and here it's like mm, okay I fucking love it. Nice try. Does not work for me at all. The guy that she is telling this to, that's the guy I thought looked like uh, David Lee Roth. Yes. Right? Yeah. He's got this awesome flowing hair. Like everybody else is filthy and greasy and dirty. Somehow he found a stash of hair conditioner somewhere and he's hoarding it. Like this guy's locks <laughs> are just flowing. Some people have such good hair that even when it gets all bleached out by the sun, it still looks really nice and flowing. No, this so. is feathered and hair blow dried. Yeah, maybe this is why he's he's the ultimate villain to Kevin Costner because he has a nice set of... He's got the hair. That's why he's like, this guy must die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're in our ultimate showdown, which is going to take place 
place a lot on the deck of the D's. The deacon gets all the smokers to go down below deck and start rowing. And the mariner comes up on deck. And this is the scene we're talking about that's like the matching between the mariner and the deacon and his men is really bad. And they all seem really crammed into the shot, too. Like Enola's in the shot and the other guy with the like the oxygen mask or whatever is in the shot. Everyone's crammed into this little shot. It's pretty terrible. The mariner is like, I want Enola back. And, you know, the deacon's like, really? She sure does talk a lot. And then the mariner's like, I noticed and then he's like, well, no, I'm not going to give her back. So the Mariner's like, well, then I'll drop this flare into the oil reserves. So he lights the flare and the deacon's like, you know, you're not crazy. You're not going to do that or whatever. But the Mariner is crazy enough to do that. And he drops the flare <laughs> and we get a nice shot of the poor old man that lives in the big oil reserve. And he says, oh, thank God, as the flare falls down and lights up the oil, immolating him. I love that. I love that he's happy to die. <laughs> I like that, too. What was he doing down there? He's the just time, checking though? the levels of oil. Like, he's their living dipstick, basically. Okay. Uh, he'd be dead in, like, a day, breathing that, right. <laughs> breathing those fumes. So, but, yeah, it's a cool scene. Right, and he's, like, a million years old. He's like Mr. Burns, who can just do it, Yeah. That basically causes a chain reaction of explosions and we're back into like another big stunt show type set piece where things are blowing up. Hot rods, though, like actual cars that they're driving around and shit. Yeah, like at one point the Mariner goes below deck and he's like swinging on a chain and the David Lee Roth guys like driving around in the car and they, they're fighting and stuff and it just becomes a lot of action stuff. It gets sort of into an explodey climax where things are exploding and people are running around and it's it's not like the best part of the movie for sure. I kind of check out for this action scene and I, I'll give it those earlier action scenes, like at least with the soundtrack was a little hard to get through, but I'll give you that those scenes actually were kind of constructed. Well, this is just, like you said, it's just a lot of stuff happening with explosions and you don't really know where he is. He's just kind of jumping around and people are crashing into each other. There's a thing to explosions in the 80s and 90s where they're really just like, you know, drums of gasoline exploding and it's not, they're not actually destroying anything with like pieces of stuff falling out. That's what you're talking about where they're just like, let's have a lot of flame balls and whatever. Balls of fire. That's, yeah, that's all they do and you're just like, hey, it's super easy to do, you know, and doesn't do anything, but it, it used to Wow, people because you're like, ooh, big explosion fireballs. It wowed Sebastian. Well, okay. Not this part, right? Like, Most of this, I think, is pretty just whatever, and I'm a little checked out of it, too. Except for the one part I know you're talking about. Yeah! There yeah! is a pretty awesome part where... The deacon has Enola in his seaplane and he's trying to take off mm -hmm. and the mariner like shoots like a harpoon with a grappling line and it hits the plane and then the mariner takes a fucking anchor and zip lines down to the plane across the entire yeah. ship. And so all the explosions are going off as he's zip lining down. It totally looks like a stunt show trick. And I believe this is in the actual Waterworld stunt show. I believe it climaxes this way. And it's Kevin Costner. And you, you see He's really him. hanging on that, that fucking anchor. It's awesome. You see his face very clearly. Like, mm -hmm. he's doing it. It's awesome. Like, fucking Tom Cruise would be proud. Tom Cruise is like, yeah. all right, Kevin, you've earned my respect. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, it looks good. 
It, he brings down a plane just by like throwing an anchor at it and riding the cable. Right? right. And he not only brings down the plane, he brings down the plane and fucking Enola, a child, miraculously survives the plane being like <laughs> crashed into the side of the deck. But I mean, I feel that this little moment, this punctuation of action kind of saves the scene. Yeah, it's a killer hero shot. Yeah, I does. mean, it's the hero shot of hero shots. It's it's awesome. So then Helen and the Enforcer and Gregor show up in the balloon and they throw them down a rope. Now we get another sort of 80s and 90s staple of people hanging off of a rope while the villains climbing up the rope. Like, I feel like this mm-hmm. is not a ton of movies too. Temple of Doom. Yeah, that's all I could think of. And like, you know, the deacon gets kicked off the rope at one point, and, but then he like falls into the water and gets on a jet ski and they get up into the balloon but then the deacon shoots the balloon and Enola falls down into the water and then this happens and I remember when I saw this in 1995 in the theater this part was when everybody was like oh my fucking god this is so (laughs) ridiculous because the fucking Mariner ties a bungee cord or some shit and bungee jumping was hot at this time. Like this was, yes, this right. was like the hot thing to throw in your movie and he fucking bungee jumps from the balloon down. And meanwhile, like the Deacon and a bunch of other jet skiers are all racing towards this like nexus point to grab Enola with dumb plan. No, but wait, he wasn't tied to the balloon, right? He, he tied it to his foot really quick and jumped off and really quickly said to Helen, like, here, tie this to something as he's falling down. Right. And so she has like seconds to like try to anchor him to the canopy that they're As in. if they've got the perfect length of bungee yes. or whatever it is. Like they just yeah, happen exactly. to have the perfect. But come on. This is the ridiculous cherry on the Sunday, right? And so he bungee jumps down and plucks Enola out of the water just as the jet skis all converge in high speed and crash into a ball of flame which kills the deacon and we get this really terrible green screen shot or something of like them coming up while the flames below them. The compositing? Composited, yes. So that's our villains are vanquished and we see the ship sinking into the water and we see that on the side it was the Exxon Valdez all along. And if you're listening to this podcast and you didn't live through the 90s, you don't know about this, but it was a oil tanker that crashed or leaked or something. And it was like spilling oil spill. Yeah. The biggest oil of spill all time, right? at the time, for sure. Yeah. I think something surpassed it now, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I- I'm surprised that they let that go. I mean, isn't Exxon a trademark? And Can you clearly see double x like exxon or did they try to disguise that a little bit no you do you see exxon valdez right so how did exxon let that go i'm surprised that they were like okay like the power of costner yeah he's like you fucked up admit it (laughs) but you know a clever gag for all of us in the 90s and we all laughed and thought like it was funny that that thing terrible thing happened it was all worth it for a water world joke right guys Well, isn't it more of a bigger statement about the environment and all that stuff? I mean, I think at the time, I mean, that was that was like a statement, you know? I mean, I think, you know, nobody was really talking about it as much as it is today. So 
I think, you know, Waterworld was one of the first, you know, things to like, yeah, to point out like, hey, this is how it could go, guys. Like This was sort of the first inconvenient truth, right? right? <laughs> this was Waterworld was yeah. was like a precursor to that type of film. As stupid as it is, it, 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 you know, it was like, you know, when you think about the melting polar ice caps, like our generation's like, yeah. Fucking Waterworld. Al Gore did say Waterworld was one of his favorite movies. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> can you imagine the the like press campaign of Kevin Costner going around talking about environmental dangers and how Waterworld, you know? Oh, I'm sure there was some bullshit like that going on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, that's why I think why the critics, you know, ravaged it too. They were like, this pretentious, probably environmental message is ridiculous, and then you know. Here it's more prevalent than ever now, at least. So we should have listened more closely to Kevin Costner and the Mariners. Absolutely, definitely. So the balloon flies off, and Gregor figures out the heading to dry land from Enola's back. And they fly away, and then a seagull lands on the balloon, and they realize. Oh my God, we're there. We found it. We found dry land. And so they arrive on this lush Hawaiian-like landscape where there's like this massive waterfall. This waterfall is amazing. I don't know where this I think it was Hawaii. Is. Hawaii, yeah. Yeah, the big island. Yeah, it is so crazy. Like they, they do a shot where they look up and it just seems to go on forever. And I know it's not CG, so it's really impressive. So they're all enjoying the fresh water and dry land. Except for the Mariner, he's seeming a little uncomfortable. But that's his character. The guy is a fucking curmudgeon through the whole thing. They finally get to dry land, and again, he's just like, I don't give a shit. Oh, he's got gills. He's got. He's meant for the water. Plus, like, everybody's been trying to kill him. Give the guy a break. Why, why should he be friendly? Yeah. He's got no reason to be nice. But then the Enforcer calls them over because he's found something, and they find this hut with some dusty skeletons in it and a music box. This whole movie, Enola's been humming this annoying little tune, and she starts to play the music box, and lo and behold, it's the tune that she was humming, and they find, like, drawings that match her tattoo, so it's all confirmed that this is where she originally came from. Makes sense that there's kanji on her tattoo because of where they did land, and but it doesn't make sense that she's white. <laughs> So, yeah, the Mariner is uncomfortable because he's not suited for dry land. You know, he's having land sickness, as they call it. You know, Enola and Helen don't want want him to go. There's a tearful goodbye scene between the Mariner and Enola where, you know, she wants him to stay, but he can't stay. In the Ulysses cut, he expresses that he knows that there are other people like him out there and he wants to find them. And like Gregor's like, yeah, I suspect one day your people will be the ones who really rule this world. So Helen and him have their scene at his new boat, which is cut way down in the theatrical. He basically just kisses her and leaves. But in the Ulysses cut, she tells him the story of a great mythical seaman named Ulysses. And because he doesn't have a name, she thinks that that should be the name that he takes now. And so she gifts him that name. And so then Helen and Enola run up the mountain to watch him sail away. And when they get to the top of the mountain in the Ulysses cut, they find a plaque 
that tells you they are on Mount Everest, which is why they can be above water because they're at one of the highest elevations. Now, shouldn't that mean that there's another dry land that's K-12 or whatever? Because isn't that higher than Mount Everest, right? No, Mount Everest is the highest elevation-wise. K-12 might be from the ground to the peak of the mountain. A better climb or something, but yeah. why do you think that was cut? That's that's a great point. Yeah, why did it? Because that's actually kind of cool. Totally. That's one of those like uh, Statue of Liberty moments at mm -hmm. the end of Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I don't know why they cut that. It's only like a second of a shot, like of a plaque. Yeah, they should have totally had oxygen tanks. And apparently, you know, Everest is littered with trash now because there's so many, you know, tourists going up there and leaving their oxygen tanks that, yeah, that would have been a nice touch too. you know, just be like the trash is still there. But. I think they were just trying to cut this thing down as to as short as they could get it. And this whole sequence feels long for the end of a movie, but I kind of feel like the movie justifies it because you do want to like see them get to dry land or whatever. I feel like the payoff isn't quite as, as amazing as you want it to be. You're like, they're finally on dry land. Like, like this should have just blown your mind and, and given you that peace that you were, you know, wanting the whole time. And but it doesn't. I don't know why. Yeah, the, especially in the theatrical, they get to dry land. They're happy. The Mariner's not. And he just kind of like, peace out. I'm out of here. Yeah. It's not for me. And that's how the theatrical ends. And it's just sort of like so anticlimactic but that's sort of a very mad maxi type of thing though it's like that's what mad max does at the end of every movie that's not my problem but yeah i just feel like yeah i mean they they're trying to do that where it's like he needs to be in the wasteland he needs to constantly be battling you know he can't he can't settle down like that's not what he's about but we just watched a whole fucking movie about how he came around to settling down. Like he finally built a relationship with this woman. He gave swimming lessons to the girl. Mad Max wouldn't do any of that shit. We watched this guy come to terms with his thinning hair and his dad bod. <laughs> and now he's going to get back out there in the action. We're like, no, you can't, man. You're middle-aged. You need to settle down. That's what this whole movie was about. Listen, this is about a man dealing with his ego and not being able to to let go like he's still got post-apocalyptic battles to fight he's got post-apocalyptic midlife crisis right he's not done like costner's not done with the post-apocalyptic he's gonna go two years later and make another giant disaster of a movie about a post-apocalypse <laughs> he's clearly not ready to accept his hair loss or his status as a post-apocalyptic warrior so no, he's got to get back in that water. He's got to get back in the action. So the budget of this movie was $175 million and it made $88 million in the U.S. It's like opening weekend was dismal too. It was like $20 million on a $175 million budget. However, this movie grossed $264 million worldwide. So it's really not as colossal as a bomb as it is made out to believe, but the reputation is that it was a huge bomb. So I think that's kind of interesting that Waterworld really isn't as big of a financial failure as it is known to be. Well, financial bomb, but critically, this thing was just ravaged. Yeah, definitely. Critically, it got totally, totally raked over the coals. And I think audiences have kind of rejected it, too. I think everybody felt like 
uh, Kevin Costner, you're you're reaching too far with this. Yeah, honestly, Sebastian, I think you're the only person I know that would consider himself a fan. Like, and you know, we know a lot of people who like a lot of bad movies. And the guys at Arrow Video are clearly fans. That DVD I have like has three cuts of the movie, a poster and a whole booklet like written by somebody who's like, you know what? Waterworld's pretty good. And I recently <laughs> saw an article written by somebody on the Internet that said ah. Waterworld is a misunderstood fun movie. So everybody's uh, kind of apologizing for it now a little bit. Fuck Yeah. Sebastian, I think you should lead the way at next Comic-Con. You're dressing as the Mariner and you're going to... I have the body for it. You're going to lead us back to the top of Mount Everest. Yeah, yeah. So why do you guys think this movie failed? I mean, we just discussed all the reasons it failed, you know? I mean, there's so many. It's the music. It's the imbalance of tone. And honestly, I think, you know, uh, people say oh, it's going to be Die Hard on water. You know, they did Speed 2 and they said, oh, let's let's make it a boat instead of a bus. Doesn't always work. It's, it's not like, oh, that makes it more exciting. If anything, it makes it less exciting because you can fall into the water and survive. And, you know, they needed a, a few. It's not just a, a switch that you pull and then it becomes more exciting. You have to think even twice as hard, I yeah. think, to come up with cool, you know, water-related things. And then it makes it twice as difficult to shoot. So... There's a lot of problems with just doing that. And I think the bleak tone of it seeps into people's subconscious and goes, man, this really could happen. And it would really suck to try and survive on the water for your entire life because you're constantly at odds with nature. And especially, you know, with the water and the food, it's just, you know, I think that seeps in there and kind of ruins the good time. But I think there is a good movie in here. I think a lot of people give it, shit unjustly you know i think people just like to laugh at it and because it did so poorly at the box office and so many critics hated it that you know everyone's oh it's just fun to pile on yeah. and you know kevin costner had dances with wolves and so he needed to get taken down he had won you know oscars and was the hottest shit at the time and then so it was time to like shit on kevin yep. costner and here here it was and on a platter for people who hated him so people just you know, pooped on it kind of unnecessarily, you know. I couldn't agree with you more about the Kevin Costner thing. That was sort of my main thesis. I feel like it was his time to eat shit. Was it because yeah. of Dances with Wolves? Everybody was just like, you're so overbloated and egomaniac. That's what I just said, yeah. Yeah, because he had, you know, taken, he had become this major star. He had directed a movie that starred himself and it was this epic. And I think he, he won like Best Director and Best Actor or something like it was kind of best picture best director and i think yeah i think he won all of it yeah <laughs> so it was time to take him down a peg and here he is doing this ridiculous fucking fish tar movie where he's like the star you know it's another giant epic and it's got this reputation where they've blown all this money and they just keep blowing more money on it and the original director walked off in a huff and like you know, everybody was just knives were out and everyone was ready to just like go to town on this movie and on Kevin Costner and not completely undeservedly so because the movie certainly has its problems. Your whole thesis about 
Putting something on water does not just automatically make it more fun. As we've discussed, visually, you've got issues. You've got issues with what you can actually do. You've got issues with how fast things appear. You can't make things go that mm -hmm. fast on water. I think they do a good job in this movie, honestly, with that problem. Troy, do you have anything to add to the story of Waterworld's quote unquote failure? I say that because I don't believe this is a failure. <laughs> this movie's stupid. <laughs> it's, just, it's, a, it's a really bad movie. It's it's an overbloated, super expensive B movie, which is fine. Those can work. Like I'm not saying those can't work, but this doesn't seem to ever grow beyond that for the sum of all its parts, right? It just feels like this movie should have been made 10 years earlier when they wrote the script to be a ripoff. And it feels like um, they had this passion project that they kind of missed their opportunity and they finally got around to it, but the world had moved on. I just remember when this came out, like nobody wanted it. Nobody asked for it. Nobody wanted to see uh, this. I wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> this, this movie sucks. <laughs> it failed because this movie sucks. I, I can't be more eloquent than that. Well, I think that we've proven you unequivocally wrong. This movie <laughs> does not suck. It's a wonderful film, but, you know, to each his own, to each his own. I think this movie is going to one day be reevaluated as a classic action film of the decade and that we'll see Waterworld rise once again. Or we'll really get there in real life. <laughs> yeah. That'll be yeah. scary. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go bell diving for dirt and toss a little girl off a boat and drink my own piss. <laughs> Woo! <-hoo! laughs> uh. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, Check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.